This show is produced and hosted by Mark Weber. The show is sponsored by G3 Apparel and the Van Heusen Company. The views expressed in the following program are those of the sponsor and not necessarily the opinion of 710 WOR or iHeartMedia. Who is Mark Weber? He's a self-made business executive here to help you find your success. From the New York City projects to the Avenue Montaigne in Paris, his global success story in the luxury world of fashion is inspirational. He's gone from clerk to CEO twice. Mark is classic proof that the American dream is alive and well. Here's your host of Always in Fashion, Mark Weber. I know I can be somebody, be somebody, Growing up, I never believed I would be successful. I knew I didn't have a chance. Yet, it's hard to explain. Somehow I always focused on doing the right thing. I didn't particularly like school. I didn't like it at all, let's be honest, but I paid attention. I did my homework. I went to high school. I graduated from college. It's all a blur. But work? Now that was a different story. It's hard to explain the feeling I had. When it came to work, all bets were off. I just knew I had a chance. It's hard to explain that feeling. It was the people first. They were impressive, for sure. They're different from anyone else I had ever been exposed to. They were dressed well. They were articulate. They were in command. The atmosphere at the office was serious, professional, and logical. The mission was clear. The company is in place to sell products, to build brand, because the stronger the brand and the strength of the brand created value, value increased profit, and the company was here to make money. I felt it. Once I realized I was in that environment, I just knew I could play a role in creating the future, my future. I wanted success. I was driven. I could literally feel the need to be successful, not even knowing how to measure it. That feeling was tangible. I could sense it. I could feel the system around me. It was like being in the matrix. It was all around this feeling of opportunity and hope. In this atmosphere of corporate America, there was a commitment to executing at the highest level. There was a roadmap for performance. You must be exceptional. If you were to stand out, you performed, you would be recognized. I was given the chance, and the chance was given to me, to grab opportunity to make something of myself. Yeah, I was driven. If opportunity didn't knock, I would build a door. Doing well wasn't enough. Doing a good job was not enough. Good wasn't good enough. I knew I needed to be great. During that time, time was suspended. I didn't punch a clock. My metronome was the goal in front of me. A goal reached, you reset the clock. I had to do well. I didn't have a choice. This wasn't a choice for me any more than breathing was a choice. Something unknown was driving me to succeed. Nothing was guaranteed. Nothing was set. Nothing was preordained. It had to be earned. It had to be done by me. It had to happen. I had no choice. I was invaded by a force, an idea, an unspoken intrusion of my psyche. I couldn't control this drive. You must succeed, Mark. That compulsion was not of this world. No, I wasn't in control. This invisible force took over my body, my mind, my time, my thinking. All of my movements, almost like in a trance, to go for it. The it, the need to succeed, it opened a window. My behavior changed. I could feel it. I became more relaxed as the pressure mounted. I was never concerned about the work. It was the politics that frightens me. I was never good at it, and I'm not sure I am still. Yet, I felt the knowledge coursing through me. My consciousness developed a mind of its own. It was curious. It was creative, uninterrupted, determined, unselfish, and its singular obsession— Perform and succeed. I was pure. Make the company successful, you will be successful. If it's good for the company, it's good for you. Ask not what your company can do for you. Ask what you can do for your company. I knew what it was. Yes, I didn't have a choice. 
I didn't have a choice coming from the city projects. I didn't have a chance until I got my chance. I knew what I was not, not what I could be. We all know who we are. We just know not what we may be. We must make the best of ourselves. We all have a chance. Nowhere does it say that life is fair. Nowhere does it say life is easy. Nowhere does it say you're guaranteed a job. I do remember reading somewhere we are endowed with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's on us to take advantage, to pursue with a vengeance the pursuit of happiness. This world will never be the person who doesn't give up. In order to succeed, though, you have to believe that you can. My advice? Learn, learn, learn. I continue to write from home. I continue to record from home. I have lots of time to think. I'm miserable. Yeah, I'm miserable, but I'm not unhappy. When I think about my career, I've never been the smartest person in the room. I've never been the best educated. I'm never in control. We can't control events. We can try to influence the outcome. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be thorough. We need to consider the choices. And then maybe, just maybe, we can succeed. Tonight, our show is we know what we are, but know not what we can be. Thinking poetically, not politically. I want to talk about life and opportunity. I have some stories, some experiences, some lessons I think you'll all find interesting. In the meantime, joining me, evidence of my success, my son, my co-host, Jesse Weber. Good evening, Jesse. We know who we are, but know not what we can be. Very, very uh, poetic. You sound like Shakespeare tonight. (laughs) Well, precisely. That is from William Shakespeare. See, I knew that. I knew that. Mm. What? You you don't believe me? You You know what's interesting about that? You said before, you read somewhere that... We are endowed with certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you even know where that's from? Of course I remember. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, where? You think I'm an idiot, huh? Where is it from, big guy? Gee whiz. How about the Declaration of Independence? I can't believe you're asking me that. I'm just checking. I'm just checking. You know, I have to say, listening to you, I've seen you work. I've seen you work your whole life. And when you set your mind to something... You do not give up. You do not take no for an answer. You're unrelenting. You're tireless. It's impressive to watch. Well, is there any other way? Well, not everyone puts the value in success that you do. And, you know, I have to think, are you saying that success is more important than anything else in life? Do you think I'm saying that? What do you think? Look, I think having a job is it's a part of who you are, whether you like it or not. It's just the way it is. You're defined in great detail by what you do. I think it tells something about it. Therefore, of course, success is an important measurement, a means of keeping score. Work provides dignity, not just financial security. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And every time you meet somebody, what's the first thing you say after you do the pleasantries? What do you do for a living? You ask that because that tells you something really important about them. Your position defines you know where you work your title how far you've gone it's a level of success it's a level of your interest i think that's important um do i think it's everything in life maybe not but i think it's really really important so what do you do i think that's important you feel successful i feel i'm on my way to be even more successful you feel successful i feel at this point in my life i'm pretty successful yeah but there's more i want to do and what is your measure of that right now I look at myself 10 years ago and I look at myself now and I think about the journey that I've had. And you're satisfied so far? Yes. It makes me happy. It's not a question of fair. It makes me happy that you feel like you're, you're making headway. Do I wish that I was hosting the Oscars at this point? Sure. But, you know, I got a long life to do it. Me too. I'd like to do that. <laughs> no. See, I think you'd be terrible at it. I think you would think you're funny and you would start insulting everybody. <laughs> See, you'd think you're Ricky Gervais, but you're not. You'd be a little bit more mean. Yeah, I'm not that talented, that's for sure. No question about it, not in that regard. I'm like a comedian. I'm a a thinker more so than anything else. But the point is, tonight, we know what we are, but we know not what we can be. And yes, success matters. Speaking of who we are, 
I want to think about us as humans, because human rights caught my eye this week in the world of fashion and luxury. And um, I've wanted to ask that question. Human rights. We all have an obligation, if you're half human, to think about, are we treating our fellow man correctly? We in the luxury and apparel business buy a lot of products. We manufacture a lot of products, millions and millions of dollars worth of products around the world. And I noticed two articles this week that caught my attention. One, the headline read, U.S. blocks imports of cotton from China region over reported forced labor abuses. Second one said, 83 brands implicated in report of forced labor of ethnic minorities from the Zhangjing region across provinces. That's a simple way of saying this is slave labor. And the question is, is it real or is it not? Jesse, did I ever talk to you how the luxury and fashion world became maniacal in its drive to make sure that anywhere they were buying product, workers were treated fairly? Uh, I don't think so, no. All right. You think it might be interesting? I do. I have a quick question about that. When you see outside certain offices or certain stores, the giant rat, is that about human rights abuses? Uh, the rat is about the unions objecting to whether or not these folks are unionized or whether they have union practices that are being met. But that's a separate subject. You would think, on behalf of the union, they're saying the people that are running the companies are rats. But that's for interpretation. I've walked by that and left, and I've worked for a company where the rat was in front of our door for a long period of time, and I didn't think it was funny, and I didn't think it was just. The reality is... Unions began at the turn of the 20th century. Big industrialized companies were opening up. And to be perfectly frank, the workers didn't have a voice. They were being mistreated, whether they were being paid fairly, whether they were being abused in any manner of abuse, whether or not they've been forced to work hours beyond any comprehension anyone should work. A lot of that was going on. Unions stepped in. They gave the worker a voice and a group with enough strength to fight back against these big, powerful bosses who ran these big, powerful companies. Over the course of time, unions became more and more important, and in reality, the workers weren't working for the companies, they were working for the unions. The unions were their voice. They didn't discuss their own wages, they didn't discuss their own strikes, they didn't discuss any negotiation between themselves individually, They had a collective force called a union, and it kind of separated the workers from the owners of the company, and it became very ugly over the years. There are many parts of the country where unions are not seen in the best light. There are many parts of the country, like when we go to Las Vegas, when we ask the workers, you've heard me do that, Jesse, you like being part of a union, they love it. They feel like the union does a lot for them, and I'm very proud and feel good about that. Why is that different in certain areas and certain locations and certain industries? Well, if we're going to get into this, is interesting now that you mention it. Let's talk about labor rates, and we talk about manufacturing. Heretofore, most of the manufacturing when existed in the United States was in the South. And in the South, the factories that were open were very easy for us at the time to pay workers limited at the lowest scale of the minimum wage, and they were thankful in the cities and places they worked for to make that money, whatever it is. Unions felt they weren't being treated fair, and they tried to unionize these shops because when they stepped in, it would no longer be uh, minimum wage and their health care benefits would go up, and it was great for the people. The problem was the manufacturers were competing with other regions and certainly every other part of the world. And while it's an unspoken conversation, workers weren't told they couldn't unionize because that's against the law. I forgot what it's called. Do you know offhand? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I'm a lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. Workers were told they can join a union if they want. You couldn't say that they couldn't. The law protects their right to organize. However, it was implied that other factories in the regions who unionized very often would close because they couldn't compete any longer. So the people were at a tremendous disadvantage, and those are places where the unions didn't work. By and large, um, as an executive, I always respected the unions. 
I didn't think that they were necessarily concerned with what the well-being of my company was. They did what they felt was best for the union. Honest men can differ. As an executive, I had more trouble understanding the union's point of view than I should have, perhaps. But I was always working for companies who found a way to come together. I don't remember ever being part of a strike. We always found a way to compromise. I found out the name, by the way. What is it? I actually just looked this up in my uh, my old law book. Oh, really? Yeah, it's the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. And what does it state? It just is a way to protect employees from employers getting involved in the union negotiations. Uh-huh. Well, I will tell you as a personal note, my father, your grandfather, belonged to the union. He was part of the topographical union. He was a printer, and he worked for the New York Daily News. He was part of that union. He always had a fair wage. He always was treated fair. He had health benefits. He was a, a blue-collar worker, and the union protected him, and he always felt good about paying his dues, and he gave him something in return. And the time came when he got older, and they wanted to reduce overhead in the newspaper. They offered many of the workers a chance to be bought out or continue on. My father took the buyout, and he got a second job, and he was very happy. So for me, the union was a good thing. And um, listen, I didn't intend to go there, but now with the there, I'm glad we did. I think I answered your question, right? Yeah, I think so. That was a good little detour. I like it. It's like you're my very own Wikipedia with business. I I plug in a question and you answer it. (laughs) Well, thanks for that, I think. Yeah, I thank you. Back to human relations around the world. I'm talking about we know who we are. We know not what we can be. Who do you want to be? The origin of human relations work in foreign countries for import products of all things became aware of one individual. And of all people, it was Kathy Lee Gifford. She was very, very powerful, very well known on Good Morning America, whatever show she's on. Wait, you mean when she was with Regis Philbin? When it was Kathy Lee Gifford and Regis Philbin doing the morning show. She was so powerful that Walmart came to her, and they signed a deal to do a line of clothing with the Kathy Lee Gifford label. And it was remarkable. Until one day, I believe it was CBS, but it could have been all the networks, did an investigative report into Kathy Lee Gifford's products and where were they being made. And they went into factories overseas, and they found that the workers were being treated unfairly, they'd been forced to work long hours, that even though they agreed to, let's say, work 8 to 8, they were working 8 to 12, they couldn't refuse overtime. They weren't paid proper wages for their overtime. The factories themselves were dangerous. The fire exits weren't safe. They didn't have all the necessary technical things they needed to be safe in that facility. There were all kinds of abuses. And it came out, this expose on TV, and it was on every day, and it was the most... Difficult thing to absorb. She was mortified. And really, the industry took notice for the first time. That if we're going to manufacture in China, we're going to manufacture in Bangladesh or Taiwan or Korea and Indonesia, wherever, why would we allow the standards to be any less, the safety to be any less than individuals who worked in those factories? Don't we care about humans? And the answer was yes. I'll never forget, I was marching along, wasn't thinking much about it, and the CEO of the company came in to me and he said, Mark, we're going to establish a human rights policy in every one of the factories. You're going to have to be involved. That's where you spend your time. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I can't live another day here knowing that we're making goods in factories that are treating workers unfairly. And I remember being taken aback by it. And I said, um... So you're asking me to be a good guy. He said, you know, I could tell you I'm asking you, but I'm really not. I'm telling you. We are going to set up a policy that every one of these factories is inspected to make sure there are no violations. And I said to him, I got to ask you a question. Are you winking at me or do you mean this? Are you afraid we're going to be walking in front of CBS News with our hands over our faces hiding? Or do you really want to do the good thing? And he looked at me and said, there's no wink. We have to be the good guys. And I said, if that's what you want to do, of course I support you. Let's be good guys. And that's where it all began. And every manufacturer, every retailer of consequence 
pretty much around the same time made a decision that if you are not treating workers fairly, we will not purchase from you. So if you were Walmart or you were Target or you were JCPenney or you were any one of the big public companies like PVH, like Nike, like The Gap, like Abercrombie and Fitch, you name it. If you wanted our business, if you wanted to sell any of us, we want to inspect your factories to make sure that human rights and workers' rights are treated fairly around the world. And processes were set up to do this so that workers would be treated fairly. Independent agencies were set up. It took a while to get a governing body together to set the standards. And it became the case that if JCPenney sent in a team from this governing body and they went and said, you have to open this door at night, it's a fire hazard, you need one more exit in your building, you need to provide new electricity because there's chance of fires, all of these things were put in place. You were no longer allowed to employ child labor. You were no longer allowed to have overtime without paying for it. And these people examined the books, and the world changed. And it became a better place. I'll never forget, it was annoying. It was a problem. Some of the factories that we relied on the most were the most difficult to change. The good news was is that all of us in the United States who believed in this were the companies that these people had to sell. And if they wanted to sell the Gap, the Gap had a feel that they were going to do the right thing. And all of us aligned together got these factories in place. Now, they didn't change overnight. You couldn't expect a factory that was making great product, making hundreds of thousands of dozens of product a year to change their entire electrical system overnight. But as long as they agreed to do it, as long as they provided contractors who went in and looked at it, and as long as they put a plan in place and started the work relatively immediately, we would be patient with them if they were getting to the right place. Because in addition to the fact we wanted these people to be safe, they needed their jobs. And I'm very proud to say as an industry, we did the right thing. So when these articles came up, and I saw them, and I knew I was going to do a show entitled, We Know Who We Are, We Know Not What We Can Be. One of the things I wanted to talk about is we know we can be better citizens. And reading these articles, I don't know if they're true. 83 companies that were mentioned, almost all of 83 gave points of view, and only a handful said they needed to do a little research. But basically speaking, the factories are saying these workers have contracts, and if they want to opt out, they can opt out. They're not being treated as slaves, but it's not clear, but it will be made clear. I was very proud of the industry in that regard once again. So tonight, in addition to learning a lot about what's going on, I wanted to share that with you. Jesse, we know who we are, but we know not what we can be. Be back in a minute. Always in fashion. This is Mark Weber. This is Always in Fashion. When I think about the single most important item in a man's wardrobe, it's a shirt. After all, the shirt sits right up by your face, and it's the platform from which you are seen. The right shirt, the right collar, the right fit says so much about you. Well, I worked for Van Usen most of my career, and I know the company. The company was built on innovation. Fashion is a given, but innovation is something that someone needs a vision and the people at Van Usen have always had it from the beginning to now. Van Usen makes a product with a flex collar. The collar moves with you. It's incredible how comfortable that collar is, particularly in a dress shirt, because over time, your fabric shrinks, gets tighter around the collar, but not Van Usen's flex collar. But the newest innovation is something that I find incredibly interesting, stain shield. I know for myself, my Best items, the things I love the most, I'm always worried about ruining them. And nothing is hit it more than stains. You drink wine, you have some mustard, some ketchup. You know, I know, sometimes we're sloppy. Can't help yourself, and you ruin your shirt. Van Usen invented Stain Shield. No matter what now, whether it's coffee, wine, mustard, ketchup, you name it, hits your shirt, it will not stain. And because of the special drying properties of this new technology, it disappears. You wipe it off and you're good. This is a remarkable achievement, especially those of you who are big shots in business. You with the business lunches. 
Okay, you go out, you have a business lunch, you're being cool, you think you're great, and boom, something gets on your shirt, you ruin it. Be surprised how when it's washed, it doesn't come back to normal. Van Usen, innovators, flex collar, stain shield, amazing. And of course, the fashion is always spot on. Speaking spots. <laughs> Van Usen, stain shield, a great new innovation. Try it out. Welcome back to Always in Fashion. Here's your host, Mark Weber. All right now, I learned my lesson well. You see, you can't please I'm thinking. I seem to be always thinking these days. Well, I have a lot of free time on my hands. I've been thinking about we know what we are, but know not what we can be. William Shakespeare, very poetic. I've been thinking about things I've learned along the way and how I got where I am and the things I've done well. And I wanted to talk about some of them tonight. And now I want to talk about shopping. I want to talk about malls. They're always in the news. So many stores are going bankrupt. I find it interesting. And the show is called Always in Fashion, so I can't help myself from time to time. I have a question for you, Jesse. Okay. Did you know that the only city in the United States that was built with a plan before it happened was Washington, D.C.? Wait, what do you mean by that? The whole city, downtown, what you know is Washington, D.C., was laid out. All of it, mapped out, laid out, all the grids, all the streets, all the locations, and it was built from scratch. Whereas all the other cities in the United States, somebody started it, and they added on a part, and they added on a part. If you think about New York downtown, where the meatpacking district crosses over and the streets into intersecting, they don't go all the way through. It was done happenstance as they went along. But Washington, D.C. was done with a plan in mind. The whole city was built that way. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That makes sense. I mean, it's the nation's capital. They had to decide where the government was going to be and who was going to be neighbors with who. We'll put the White House here. We'll put Congress here. We'll put the Supreme Court here. Well, the, the powers to be had the right idea, and they turned that city from a planning point of view into a paradise. It was really, really well thought out, all the streets, everything laid out. It got me thinking about malls. It got me thinking about the psychology of shopping and malls, and I wanted to talk to you about that tonight. I'm in the mood to impart information. did a show last week, Fish Where the Fish Are Swimming. The idea was that, you know, the opportunities exist where the opportunities exist. And I gave a lot of information. I kind of liked the way the show was. So I'm going to do a similar thing tonight and talk about stuff maybe you never thought about or never heard about. Like you, I walk into a mall. I don't give it a second thought. Jesse, you walk into a mall. You ever think about the way it's laid out? Yeah, I, I do. If it has like three floors, that's a major mall. There's some malls that are just one-tiered. But yeah, I like and also also when I walk into a mall, the stores that are at that entrance versus the stores you have to like seek out and find with that complicated map that makes absolutely no sense in every mall, that tells me which stores are important and which stores are not important. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm glad you see it that way. But I'm going deeper than that right now because there is a psychology that when it comes to malls, they are very well planned. Malls are like Washington, D.C., just in case you weren't sure. Why did I start with Washington, D.C.? Because malls are laid out with the same intricate detail, with the same foresight and the same planning that a well-run machine needs to have. And I was very impressed by that because I grew up my whole life. I never thought about it. To this day, if I let my intellect slip, I walk into a mall and I enjoy it. How is that possible? Stores change all the time. How can they lay out a mall beforehand? Ah, well, that's part of what goes awry, but I'll get to that. But if you think about actors, I wonder whether actors, once they see the process of acting, can they ever watch a movie the way we do and really enjoy it and put aside whatever the hell is going on in the back? Well, as you know, I am a trained actor. Uh, you, you might have seen me in many projects, and... Uh... Yes, I, I, you can. You can enjoy things. You don't think musicians like other people's music? Good point. Well, I, I'm making the point that I understand what malls are about and retail's about, and I, I do believe I could put it aside and still enjoy it. But here's the point I wanted to make to you. I never thought about what a mall looks like other than where is the store I want to shop in. My first trip to China as a marketing executive took place really 
after my company bought Calvin Klein. Up until that point, I spent a lot of time in China. That's why I like China, why I like the people there, why I like the, the way they do business, because I spent a lot of time in China. And I did it as a buyer. I was there as a negotiator, representing America, representing one of America's powerful fashion companies, bought a lot of product in China. I had a big pencil. I had an opportunity to buy a lot of product. I was treated very well, and I got to look at the companies this way, in China that way. But now we bought Calvin Klein, and there we were an operating company. Sure, one division would buy all of jeans and whatever they needed to make Calvin Klein, but we also had stores. We had a lot of stores in China. Calvin Klein is a huge, huge, highly successful global brand. They had underwear stores like you see in the United States. They had jeans stores. They had men's stores, women's stores, combined stores. Very big business. The first time I went to China as the president of PVH and we acquired Calvin Klein, I went to China and met with the head of the Chinese office that time. I have to say, uh, she was remarkably adept at her job. And she laid out a day for me in China. And I was wondering, how is she going to lay out my day? What does she want me to do? You want to guess, Jesse? I have no idea. I have no idea what she had in store for you. Yeah, I didn't either. The first day in Beijing, she wanted me to meet with the landlord owners, the landlords of the malls. I kind of scratched my head and said, of all the things that I have to do here, that's how she wants me to spend my time? I should have in advance, this is a lesson for everyone. If I knew I was going to China, I knew I was going to spend time in one or two days there. Someone should have done an itinerary for me. I probably had, I never looked and I wasn't doing the thorough job that I do today if I was going for the first time in that capacity. I get there, she tells me she wants to meet with the mall owners. And I walk into the mall and she explains to me on the way there, the most powerful force in China for American brands or luxury brands from anywhere in the world are the mall owners. They make the decision whether you live or die in that mall. I said, what do you mean? I have Calvin Klein here. I want to go in the store, in the mall. I want to take a store. She's marked as thousands of stores lined up to come there. And this mall owner makes the decision. I was shocked. That's the only way? She said, well... In certain smaller cities, knowing the mayor might help. When you come down to it, those streets that have selling product like Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, in order to have a street store, you need to know the mayor because he makes the decision in terms of who will or will not be there. And during the course of my conversation, she started to say, before we get there, let me explain to you what you're going to see when you walk in. It's all planned. The mall owner determines how his mall is going to be run, and I'll tell you how it's run. On the first floor is luxury. The best brands in the world want to be in that mall. If it's the right mall, as most of China is in the big cities, Vuitton, Gucci, Prada, every one of them. If you're Tom Ford, they're all on the first floor because when you walk in, you're going to make it as easy as you can for the luxury customer. If you have a great brand, but you're not luxury, you're not getting on that floor. The second floor, do you want to guess what's up there, Jesse? I'll tell you, it's Diffusion. Do you know what Diffusion is? Yeah, it's the a step down from that top brand. So it's, if you're like a top brand, let's say Donna Karen, it's DKNY, right? Yes, Diffusion line is definitely affiliated with the designer, but it's usually the second line, the one that's more affordable. So if you're Giorgio Armani and there's a collection, you'd be on the first floor. And if he had a second line, like Emporio Armani, you'd be on the second floor. And this exists in most brands. They all have a second line that's more affordable and more reachable. And your example of DKNY works very well. And the third floor would be the least expensive stores in the mall. Now, in China, there's no least expensive. They're consumers. I mentioned in an earlier show, 30% of the world's luxury customers are in China. And therefore, there's a lot of people spending a lot of money. China making a decision to have one country, two systems. They allowed entrepreneurialism and capitalism into China, and it changed the whole country. It's still rural. There's still a billion people, most of them living outside the cities, 
But the cities and industries have been growing so dramatically over the last 20 years. The Chinese people have a lot of money to spend. The third floor, you would find jeans per se. Calvin Klein jeans, Tommy Hilfiger, and a list of all all those brands. And those malls are tiered that way. And when you think about it, when you walk into a mall in the United States, it's the same way, but you never think about it that way. And is that because the majority of people shopping are looking for uh, those quick items like jeans and sweatshirts? And they're like, okay, I'm going to go to that store. But because on their way to that store, they have to pass by all these expensive stores, right? And it gives them a second to think, hmm, maybe I'll go look this out and get shoes. You're, you're on the right track, but no. Let's, uh, I'm going to answer you why. First of all, you could sell luxury and a lot of it. You're getting a higher price on everything you sell. The margins are a lot higher, so they want to make it accessible to people. So someone drives up in their limousine to the front of the mall, they walk right into Louis Vuitton or Prada or Gucci. It's right there for them, and then they go from there. Now, of course, malls, psychology. There's escalators, there's elevators. The way the malls are laid out in circles, usually, or, or large rectangles, are designed for you to go from one place to the other and work your way up or down, however the case may be. But if you're a luxury customer that has your eye on one particular store, you're there. Now, in the United States, it's very much different, because when you think about a mall, There are very few, if any, that I could think about that are all about luxury. There's one I could think about. You know it and I know it. Which one, Jesse? You're talking about Manhasset? No. The Americana Mall. Well, it's really a a series of streets and outdoor stores that are not connected. Malls are all connected under one roof, right? Oh, yeah. Manhasset, you have to walk in one store, out, in one, out, in one. That's That's like a shopping street. Oh, okay. I know a luxury mall. Go ahead. Is it the one in Florida, Bal Harbor? No. That's not a luxury mall. That's all luxury stuff. Um, yes, maybe that's an exception. Maybe. I'd have to think about it. It might be. I was thinking about crystals in Las Vegas. Oh, that's a good one. Because every single store is a luxury store. Every watch store is a luxury store. Every jewelry store. And the big anchor tenants, that's what's the difference in the United States. United States, if you think about it, the anchor store is Macy's or JCPenney or Dillard's in the South or um, Belk's in the Southeast or in the West, Nordstrom. Those big stores anchor the malls. And therefore, because they are so big and they take up so much space and they spend so much rent, they get a lot of priority in the mall because having those stores there will bring in all the other stores because they bring in traffic. So much so, you ever think when you pull up to a mall, where is the best parking? Right in front of Macy's because Macy's insists, I want my customer to come into that mall through my store. And even if they aren't shopping in Macy's, they're walking through. Macy's demands it because they're buying so much real estate in that mall. And that makes sense. How many times have we gone into Roosevelt Field Mall? You go through Macy's, you can't even figure out how to get through Macy's to get to the mall. Exactly. Exactly. Well, here's the here's the thing that I'm confused about. You know, mapping out a mall before it's built, malls change constantly. There are stores that are closing. There are new stores that come in. How does that work? Very good question. The malls are built with the best intentions. And when they're selling the space to all these retailers, they lay them out the way they want to lay them out. That's their plan. But as you point out, a store closes. Victoria's Secret may have closed in one mall, or Nike. I remember Nike closed in Roosevelt Field. They did their best to put another store like Nike, but if they can't, they have to be expedient. They have to put in what makes sense, and that ruins the town planning, per se. So when you see it, sometimes after a while, it's a little bit of a mishmash, and it wasn't delivered the way it was intended. But I can tell you one thing. The malls in China are. And malls that commit, whether it's Bell Harbor or Crystals, or whether it's Manhasset, or whether it's Fifth Avenue for the first five blocks from 59th Street to 50th Street or 55th Street, they're laid out. The rest could be, well, whatever the market will bear. I got another one for you just before I give up on this subject. Do you know that all psychology work that has been done every time you walk in a store, do you know they have your number before you walk in? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll tell you because we talked about this one time. When someone walks in a store, 
90% of them turn right. Yeah, why is that? I have no idea, except with creatures of Abbott. What do you do? You make sure that that right-hand wall in your store is fabulous. It's either making a strong statement in the brand or it's making a strong statement of the best product you have in the store. The first 5 to 15 feet in the store is called a decompression zone. It's a transition zone. Decompression, if you think about it, you walk into a store, your heart might be racing. You might feel like you're going into a strange place. A lot of people don't feel comfortable. They don't know what to expect. You walk in the first 5 to 15 feet. It's designed psychologically for you to relax, for you to transition from being in the hall to being in this particular store. When you walk in, it gives you a broad sweep of the store, allows you to look, get the lay of the land, see what you like, what you don't like, and gets you pointed in the direction of where you can find what you're looking for. That's all about comfort. And then the rest of the store is laid out for flow. They want you to walk through the whole store. You can't just cut. They have fixtures in the way. There's a path that pretty much either gets you to the register or makes you walk through the whole store to get out. Ever go into an apartment store, you go up the up escalator and the down isn't there because they want you to have to struggle on the floor and walk around to see it. So these stores, their windows, all a brand statement. All a brand statement. When you walk by a store, there's less than one second to catch someone's attention. I'm always fascinated by that. I love this conversation. You ever walk by a store that shows you a different piece of merchandise that they try and show you everything that's in the store in the window? Do you like when they do that, Jesse? What do you, like, what do you mean? Well, you walk by the store and right in the front, in the window, has a piece of everything, an idea of everything that's in the store. Is that like you're saying when they have a mannequin and the mannequin has like four different like pieces of clothing on him? No, it's like they have five mannequins, and each is a different outfit, a different color, a handbag here, a shoe there. They got a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I've seen that before. Yeah, well, I hate that because it's just what I said. It's stuff, not a statement. I, for one, believe in stores that have or create a powerful reaction from you. If you're going to put a store window black and white, Man, it'll stop you back. Or navy and white. You look at Ralph's store, everything is color-related. Makes a lot of sense because it's trying to draw you in. And you might not be showing every single item in your store, but every single item is a mishmash. By and large, all of these things are being done in malls because it's planned. All these stores are being planned, and they're there to get you in. Many stores are free flow, and once you're in them, you're gone. But that's what's going on. And I thought about this because you're all going shopping. It's Christmas time. I thought it'd be interesting just to share that with you. Know that they're there to attract you before you even get there. The parking lot is designed to bring you into given stores. Once you're in that mall, all the stores are laid out by next to neighbors that make sense to be laid out. They're making it easy. You want to shop designer? It's there. You want to shop jeans? It's there. It's all laid out for you. And of course, there's food courts in wherever you go because they want you to stay as long as you can. They don't want you to leave because you're hungry. I have to go to the bathroom. Tonight, I'm talking about I know what I am, but I know not what I can be. It's the same thing for you. I'm trying to educate you when you go out to shop. You come back, I have some more. Always in fashion. This is Mark Weber. I remember so clearly when Donna Karen hit the scene. It was explosive. She was one of the most dynamic designers in the history of the world, and her product was very, very different from anything anyone in America had ever seen. She was modern. She was New York. She was vibrant. When you looked at the business in those days, there were companies like Ralph Polo or Tommy Hilfiger or Nautica, great traditional American brands, but no one identified modern. You wanted modern, you had to find Giorgio Armani. Black was the basis of his presentation, and everything about it had a European chic to it. But not in America, until Donna came. Donna was a New York life resident, understood the pace of the city, understood what it was like to live in the city that never sleeps, that goes 24-7. Donna invented 
DKNY, Dunnacarra, New York. I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I was in London, and they had built a magnificent four-floor store in a building with an open roof, a glass ceiling. Glass ceiling, I suppose, representing we're changing the way things are done. DKNY was, frankly, nothing short of extraordinary, both men and both for women. Black was the basis of the brand, although the many colors played off the palette. And they all look good against black. Let's face it. We live active lifestyles. We get up in the morning. We do different things. We work. We play. Evenings is about entertaining and seeing the best that New York has to offer. DKY offers a collection of menswear and womenswear, both footwear, accessories, suits, shirts, ties, women's sportswear, women's activewear that speaks to the lifestyle that goes with you wherever you want to go. And it's always modern, it's always contemporary, it's always at the forefront of what fashion should be with a New York lifestyle in mind. I've lived the life. I was the chairman and CEO of Donna Karen. I understood what that brand meant. And I can tell you, if you want to step out and you want to walk away from your traditional roots, if you want to be modern, you want to make a statement of elegance, but in a New York kind of way, with a sophistication of New York as a person who understands all the city has to offer and all the modern lifestyle in America is about, you find it everywhere. People are forcing themselves, urging themselves to get out and be special and live this lifestyle. DKNY. You can find DKNY at DKNY.com or in Macy's. I'm telling you guys and I'm telling you ladies, you can look chic, you could look special. You look right. DKNY. Welcome, Welcome back, back to, to Always in fashion. fashion. Here's your host, Mark Weber. We know not what we are, but know not what we can be. I've been thinking about lots of stuff, but I've been thinking about who I am and what we are, what I can be started the show by thinking about what drove me. How did I get where I got? And I'm taking some poetic license. I'm starting to think about industry and what industries do. Malls, mall developers. And I, I got into shopping. I can't help myself. Between Thanksgiving, Black Friday, and now Christmas shopping, I'm thinking about all of this. got me thinking about outlet stores. You ever think about outlet stores and what they're all about, why they're there? Jesse, you like outlet stores? I do like outlet stores. Aside from what they represent, which is sometimes a great discount, they also are positioned in a way where it's a fun experience, especially as we talk about in Las Vegas. It's outdoors, a lot of stores. It's just a great, fun, interactive place to be. I must admit, I've been involved with outlet stores from the day it began. And, you know, as Jesse says, wherever we've gone on vacation, whatever we've been together, if there's an outlet store, we go. And they learn to love it. My children have been there since they're little boys. Outlet stores are fascinating. They began because manufacturers, people with brands, like my friends at Van and like Tommy Hilfiger, like Ralph Lauren, were being closed out of opportunities to sell. Retailers, I have to say this, retailers have the right to make decisions on what they buy and where they buy and how much they buy. It's their store, their house, they could do whatever they want. Over a course of time, they made decisions that they don't want to share products. That, for example, if um, a brand, I'll do it with Nike. If a brand, Nike, is in Macy's, JCPenney might not want it. But, or if Nike decides to sell JCPenney, Macy's might not want it because Macy's is in the same mall as JCPenney. And they're afraid that JCPenney will make it cheaper than them all the time. And they don't want to compete with JCPenney on price. I never agreed with that. When you as Sony, if you want to sell Sony Walkman, you sold it to anybody who could sell Sony Walkman. A store's responsibility is to service a customer. If you're selling electronics, if you're selling cameras, you had to have a Walkman at the time. Same time now. If it was up to Apple, I'm sure they would sell all their iPhones in their own stores. But it's not enough distribution. So they sell them in conjunction with AT&T or Verizon or whoever the providers are. And now you go into Macy's, you'll see some Apple, and you'll see it all over. They had to expand. They go where the consumers are. 
But more and more of these retailers started putting the pressure on manufacturers, designers, etc., to consolidate, not sell everyone, etc. So people started opening up their own stores. And now, with all these big stores closing, JCPenney in bankruptcy, coming out of bankruptcy, Neiman Marcus in bankruptcy, Sears is a mess for whoever knows what the heck is going on in Sears. Barney's closed. Brooks Brothers went bankrupt. All these companies going bankrupt in retail. Forever 21, the darling, bankrupt. They'll come back, but it's less people to sell. And people realize that if they want to be direct to consumer, they want to communicate with the consumer, they would open up their own stores. They could open up first class, regular price stores on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue or in your local neighborhood, wherever that may be, where people shop. But they found that outlet stores was a great way to do business because outlet malls were being built. Every single company in the world today is in outlet stores. There was a time that only a few brands were in outlet stores, and now they all get together. And the same philosophy we talked about early in department stores exists in outlet malls. There are luxury sections, there are designer sections, there are brand sections. In retail, it's not just location, location, location but it's who you sit next to. If I was opening an outlet store in a mall, I wanted to be near Nike. Why? Because Nike had them lined up around the block. I also want to be near Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren builds huge stores. Ralph Lauren has billion-dollar retail outlet business. Outlet business is interesting. It's a different philosophy than department stores because you could shop in an outlet store. You have to make a commitment. It's not like you roll out of bed and drive two minutes and you're in your favorite mall or 10 minutes. Outlet stores are generally speaking, I don't know if you realize this, at least an hour away from where you live. The idea is if you're going to put the same brand in a discount outlet mall that you have in a better department store, you have to put some distance between you or your department store friends are going to get angry. And maybe correctly so because sometimes you see the same product in the outlet store at a lower price than you would find it in a department store. So the first thing you do, you have to make a commitment. And then there's this unspoken handshake between the outlet store and the consumer. The consumer is charged with the following responsibility. You're willing to drive and invest time and spend a day. No one goes to the outlet store to go in and buy an item and come home. They spend a day there. You go to Macy's in your neighborhood, you're looking for underwear, you buy it, you come home. Maybe you walk around the store before you come home, but you're not spending a day there, whereas outlet shopping is spending a day. The consumer also has to be knowledgeable. You have to understand where the value is. If you're going to buy, let me think, uh, a denim shirt. I know I could buy a denim shirt from Ralph Lauren for $85. Nice shirt. I know I could buy a denim shirt for uh, $45 from Izod, one of my favorite brands. I used to work there. And there's a difference between the two. Ralph Lauren may be making, frankly, the same shirt as Izod, but you put that logo, a polo pony on there or the Ralph name, it commands a higher price. Well, if you go into an outlet mall and there's a store there and they have a denim shirt, What are you prepared to pay for that denim shirt? You have to be knowledgeable about it. Because on the price ticket, it says comparable price. And in this case, an outlet store would be $29.99 in my case. So, Jesse, what does the law have to say about uh, comparative pricing? Wow. You know, that's... uh... That's a really tricky area, and there's been a ton of lawsuits about this over the past few years. The basic rule is if you're a retailer and you're going to do comparative pricing, if you're going to show that you have a discount, if you're going to compare that price to a former price, if you're going to compare it to someone else's price, the rule is you can't mislead customers. You can't deceive them. You have to be telling the truth. And unfortunately, we have seen a lot of companies getting very, very uh, wish-washy with those numbers. Well, the point is, the law has something to say. That's how tricky it is. And now I'm talking about the responsibility that consumers have coming into that outlet mall. You have an obligation to understand the value. I use the example of the denim shirt. If I had a denim shirt in a particular store and I didn't really make that shirt before, 
but I had it in my store and I have a comparable price, I might say it's comparable price, $85 to the Ralph Lauren shirt. The only difference being it doesn't have the logo. Or I may make it to the $50 uh, Izod shirt that also has in the store at 50 So the consumer has to understand what the value is. The outlet mall has its own responsibility. You have to make the outlet center convenient and easy to park. Even though it's an hour away, it has to be relatively easy to get to, has to be easy to park. There have to be amenities. You have to feed all the people that come to that center. There have to be plenty of bathrooms. But the most important thing the outlet center has to do is bring great brands together. They have to attract you. They have to make it worth your while. It's a shark fest. You walk in, you can't wait to eat up everything that's there. You need the names of the stores. And each of those stores and each of those brands have to give value. You have to see the discount. You go into a lot of department stores, there's a lot of sales going on. In outlets, it has to be less than that. So you need to give them a selection. You have to put enough stores together that people want to hang there. You have to treat these customers, once they're in your mall, in a way that they want to stay there. Now recognize every retailer is manipulating you. Every brand is manipulating you. I don't mean it in a bad way. You have everything you need. You don't need anything. We're in the want business. Our whole business is to make you want something you don't need. I'll tell you what. There used to be a guy who was an American entrepreneur. He's very famous. He invented a chain called Sims. It was a discount retail operation. It ran for many, many years. His daughter eventually took it up. But his slogan was, an educated consumer is our best consumer. Speaking to the point, you've got to know what you're buying if you're in those outlet centers. I have two favorite centers in the world, and if I keep going on, I probably three. One in Las Vegas, which we can talk about. But really, there's one in London called Bista, Oxfordshire, in the United Kingdom, outside of London. 52 minutes by car, 40-some-odd minutes by train. It's the most amazing center in the world. You want to talk about a who's who of every European luxury brand, the Americans have to fight to get in. I mean fight to get into that mall because there's so many beautiful, well-known European luxury brands that people from all over the world come to the center. 65 trains a day go from London to Bista. You go there and it's amazing. You can't believe what you're looking at. And I happen to know the chairman and CEO And he makes it clear, if you're going to be in this mall, not only are you going to have comparable product and things you want to offer the consumer, you're going to have things that come directly from the main line in these stores or you can't be there. He has people going in and policing these things. So what am I doing here today? I guess I'm talking to you about who you are and what you want to be. You want to be smart when it comes to shopping in outlets. If you want to invest your time, go right ahead, do some homework. You get there, the malls have an obligation to satisfy what you need to be happy that you're being there. And being that it's the time of the year we do most of our shopping, even though we're at home by and large, those of you who are brave, wearing masks, distancing by six feet, observing all the etiquette that needs to be done to remain safe, if you're shopping at outlet centers, I hope you found this interesting. I'll take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Always in fashion. This is Mark Weber. This is Always in Fashion. There's nothing more important than your shirt if you're a man. Shirts sit right next to your face. It's the launch point for how you look. Shirt is the foremost thing that anyone will see when they look at you and set the stage. I know the Van Usen company. I know they're great products. Van Usen has always had an extraordinary fashion sense. And almost more important is their understanding of technology and innovation as a shirt company. They began as manufacturers and learned how to make shirts the proper way. They've come across an astounding new technology called Stain Shield. Believe it or not, you can't ruin your shirt any longer by staining it. Coffee, wine, mustard, ketchup, you're a mess, you're not going to make your shirt a mess. It'll wipe right off. When you wash it, you're good. You'll never ruin your shirt. You take this incredible stain-free technology, combine it with a flex collar that never shrinks, never goes out of style, will always be comfortable when you wear it, and you have an extraordinary new intervention from the Van Usen Shirt Company. 
I can't tell you how many shirts I've lost along the way. Shirts that I loved because of staining them. Well, that's no more. Van Usen Stain Shield. Look right, feel right, and know that you have a friend for life. This is Mark Weber. This is always in fashion. Van Usen shirts are worth the investment. Welcome back to Always in Fashion. Here's your host, Mark Weber. We can do anything. We could be heroes. This is Mark Weber. I've been thinking. We know what we are, but we know not what we can be. William Shakespeare, I have to come across that, and I thought about it. I know what I am. When I was starting out, I didn't know what I could be. I had no clue. I never expected success in any measure. I got to think about it. I started talking about it tonight. I opened with this conversation about who we want to be. Spoke to great detail. I got waylaid starting to talk about shopping because we're all caught up in shopping and how we have to know who we want to be when we're shopping. But I want to tell you something. I had this incredible level of success, not because I'm the smartest guy in the room, but I'll cut down. I can give you a million reasons why I shouldn't have been successful. Why I have had success is because of the people I was surrounded by. I'll tell you a quick story of, of being taught a lesson that's so relevant forever. I was the young president of a company. We had at the time 100 different salesmen operating and traveling throughout the United States. In those days, there were a lot of different stores, a lot of different people to see. It was before all the retail stores consolidated. Went from hundreds of different accounts to a handful. You didn't need the structure that we had. And I decided to reorganize the structure and keep 10 key regional managers and let go of, with all due respect, most of the sales force. We went from probably 110 people down to 30, maybe more that we let go. But it was something that had to be done. And I came up with a way to do it. And I arranged a meeting and brought the surviving 10 into a room and I explained to them how I admired them so much that they were the creme de la creme of our team that I had nothing but the greatest respect and saw the value in what each of them did and was excited to tell them that they were each becoming vice presidents and regional managers of their territories. In addition to that, there were two senior people, one from the South and West and one from New England that were made senior vice presidents that these other 10 people would report to. One of them was named Ted Seeloff. He's an older fellow at the time than me, may he rest in peace now, but he was an amazing guy based in Dallas, Texas. And he was very, very good at what he did. He was smooth. He, too, was well-trained. He was articulate, had that great accent, but he knew how to speak and he knew how to sell and he knew how to manage. Not only all of those people, but me. I was a young president. I must have been 20 or 30 years younger than him when I became president. And yet he treated me with the greatest respect. And he always had great counsel for me whenever I asked a question. I always really, really respected having someone like him there to help me and guide me right through wrong. And I'll never forget the lesson I learned. I had this meeting. I spoke to all these people. At the end of the meeting, I felt good about what I did. And when it was over, I went back to my office And I called Ted in to come and talk with me. And I said to Ted, I can't tell you how excited I am about what we're doing. He says, as am I, Mark. And I feel really good about the people we chose. And he said, you're right, Mark. Every one of them is special. And then I said to him, so tell me, Ted, what do you think about the structure that I created? And he looked at me. And he said to me, how dare you ask me that question? And I was taken aback. I I didn't know where this was coming from. I never saw him do that before. And in his own way, he wanted to teach me a lesson. And I said to him, I don't understand, Ted. Why are you answering me that way? And he said, Mark, you are my president. You are the president of the company. You made a decision. And I have an obligation to respect and execute on that decision. And then he quietly said, If you wanted my opinion, you should have asked me beforehand, and then I could have shared with you what I thought. I thought that was a great lesson in people, and a night when we're talking about we know who we are, we know not who we can be, 
That's an example of why yours truly has had some success being surrounded by men like that. Think back of who I am and how I got here. It all comes down to training. I've often said, I don't know if I'm smart, that's for others to decide, but I know I'm well-trained. When you get trained at a company, you don't sit down at a desk with a paper and pencil and take notes. You're not in class. There's not a curriculum. There's not a, a book that you learn from. You learn from the people you're surrounded with. If you're smart, you know who the people are that can teach you. Whether they work for you or you work for them, you can learn from every one of them. You want to be successful? This is something that we all need to understand. In my case, I was always curious. I respected everything I didn't know. In fact, I respected what I didn't know more than what I did know. And because of that, I went out of my way. I started this show talking about how driven I was. I didn't care where the next great idea came from. I didn't care who I worked for or what I worked for as long as I could learn from them. When I sat in meetings, I asked questions. If I thought the questions were stupid, I made a note to ask them of someone I trust later on. I never stopped learning information. I wanted to learn. So when I ask the question tonight, we know who we are, but know not who we can be. We can be anything we want to be if we devote ourselves. You just have to understand who you are and where you're going. With that, I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Good night. We go.